light it up. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. Maybe it's me who needs to understand Fred. You know, walk a mile in his ascot. So let me get this straight. To stop annoying Fred, you're going to become Fred, which is guaranteed to annoy Fred? Sandwich, big sandwich. Build that sandwich high. Sandwich, big sandwich. Up into the sky. He used to say, whoa, nobody move. My tuna fish sandwich is missing. Well, that's a weird thing to say. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a safe, relaxing time over the holidays. For the first month of 2021, we've got another theme month on the podcast. This time, we'll be focusing on Be Cool Scooby-Doo. To kick off the month, we have head writer and story editor on the show, John Coltonberry. It's been a while since I had the chance to chat with John, as I did want to post it within the themed month, so I'm excited for you to finally be able to listen to it. And without further introduction, let's just get right into the interview. Hi, John. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Hey, Alexa. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Of course. If you're up for it, I'd like to start off with a quick three-question trivia game. Okay. For you or for me? Do you want me to ask you questions? Oh, well, I guess we could switch it up, but (laughs) I'll ask you questions. Okay, it's good. I'm not prepared. Um, So question one, can you name both Fred and Velma's fears that come up in Be Cool Scooby-Doo? I can, yes. Uh, Fred is afraid of wits and Velma is afraid of water. That is correct. Uh, in question two, in the episode All Paws on Deck, what happens to Fred's cousin Scott throughout the mystery? Um, poor cousin Scott becomes prematurely grizzled uh, due to the stressful, difficult life uh, at sea. That is correct as well. And last question for the trivia. In the episode Their Wolf, can you name one of Dr. Dunsbury's siblings' unrealistic careers? Oh, um, yes. Um, I think his sister was a, was a a princess mermaid or something. Um, one of his brothers was a, a space pirate cowboy. Am I close or was not it? Uh, yeah, it was a fairy princess mermaid and a space pirate and a cowboy fireman. Oh, a cowboy fireman. Right. Um, I knew I knew those occupations were all mixed up in there, but yeah, I forgot which uh, which combo we did. <laughs> I totally <laughs> forgot about that. That's great. And to start off the general questions, what's your relationship to Scooby Doo? Did you grow up watching? Uh, I did. Yeah, um, growing up, uh, mostly uh, reruns of Scooby Doo. Where are you? Played a lot, and that that was mostly what I grew up with. Um, but the, the new Scooby-Doo movies with the guest stars, um, you know, I was, I remember Laugh Olympics, all that stuff. Um, yeah, Scooby-Doo was ever present, you know, and, and 
I think in most childhoods, I mean, there's never been a time when there wasn't some iteration of it on the air, but uh, certainly, certainly in mine. Do you have a favorite personal memory related to Scooby-Doo at all? Um, not, not, not a particularly um, distant one. I, I, most of most of my fondest memories of Scooby-Doo are from working on Be Cool Scooby-Doo, and uh, a lot of those were just the um, particularly early on um, when it was just Zach Moncrief and myself sort of coming up with how are we going to approach Scooby-Doo? What are we going to do? Um, we had just such a great, fun time reimagining these characters in the show and, and, uh, and coming up with what became Be Cool Scooby-Doo. It was, it was, it was really exciting and, and we laughed a lot. And can you elaborate a little bit more on maybe what that development process was like? Uh, yeah. Uh, Zach and I had worked together on uh, Phineas and Ferb at Disney. And uh, we we really, really enjoyed um, the work that we did on that show together. He was a, a, a director. I mean, he did some um, writing and storyboarding as well. He's a, he's a great writer also. Um, and uh, and there were a lot of episodes that we did together. Um, one of them was was nominated for an Emmy that, that we did together. Um, and there were just lots of little moments uh, where we were together in a room working on just a, a little character moment where we felt really connected. And, um, and we were on the same page with how important just to get those little moments right was. And... Uh, he then later on moved over to Warner Brothers and was offered uh, Scooby-Doo to run Scooby-Doo. They had, um, you know, Mr. Incorporated had been the uh, last iteration of Scooby-Doo, which had been a, a much more serious um, sort of gritty, uh, actually kind of frightening um, version of Scooby-Doo. And Warner Brothers wanted the next version to be the opposite sort of they said uh mr incorporated was 70 percent uh scary 30 percent funny and they wanted to flip it for the next version and um zach very kindly said well i think then you know we need to get john in they in here um uh because uh warner brothers had also said yeah we sort of want to make the phineas and ferb version of of scooby-doo so uh, he called me up and asked me, you know, would you be interested in that? And uh, um, I certainly was interested in working with Zach again on something. Um, I, I, I didn't consider myself to be a, a, a giant, giant uh, Scooby-Doo fanatic or even, you know, I didn't know very much about Scooby-Doo apart from Scooby-Doo, where are you? And having, you know, superficially seen other iterations of it. Um, so I went in pretty open-minded and... Um, and Zach and I looked at, we watched Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And, you know, apart from the nostalgic, you know, like, oh, you know, I remember this as a child. Um, just from a technical standpoint, we were like, you know, this is not the greatest show in the world. You know, it's, it's the, 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 most of the, the main gang are sort of cardboard and one dimensional and sort of vanilla um, they don't really have personalities. They don't have points of views as characters. They're just sort of these generic, Fred is the leader, 
Daphne is is the pretty one. She had the danger prone layer of her, but um, but it, but there wasn't really a point of view that the character had as a personality. Velma slightly more and being sort of the brainy one, but even even that wasn't absolutely spelled out in Scooby Doo. Where are you? Um, it was mostly Shaggy and Scooby were given sort of definitive points of views as characters. They were afraid of everything and always hungry. You sort of knew what their goals were, um, be, apart from solving mysteries, uh, which really wasn't their goal. But um, so the big revelation to us, looking at then all the other iterations of Scooby-Doo, where they suddenly put in Scooby-Dum and Scooby-D and Scrappy, they took out Fred and and Velma and just left Daphne or took out Fred, Velma and Daphne and only had Shaggy and Scooby. Um, it all seemed to be trying to fix the main problem we saw which the, with the original version, which was Fred and Velma and Daphne could be uninteresting characters from time to time. They just didn't have a lot to offer from a point of view character wise. So, so why don't we address that and actually give Fred, Daphne, and Velma very distinct comedic points of views and elevate the entire gang into a comedic ensemble? Um, and and we were surprised that no one ever actually did that. Um, Mr. Incorporated might have moved a little bit more in that direction, but it was still, there was still, to me, fairly simple sort of, Fred is into traps. Daphne is into Fred. Um, you know, th those weren't exactly points of views or, or personalities to me. So we we spent quite a long time working and developing the 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 main gang personalities and sort of doing the algebra of that. So so when one of them is is behaving, you know, in, in an extreme way. Um, the other ones will be reacting extreme ways that that if one is being funny the others can be funny that they all would be bouncing off each other correctly and um and that was the the main intent and goal uh developing the show was getting you know the characters um into this sort of funny new place and uh when 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 i arrived when zach first arrived um Richard Lee was the art director on the show, and he was the only one working on the show at that time, just doing art. And and the 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 designs of the show um, were were very pushed and much more cartoony when we arrived than they had ever been. And that's the direction Warner Brothers wanted to go. And um, so Zach and I kind of leaned into that and. And the look of the show is actually essential to the writing. So many people say, oh, um, you know, I hate the way people Scooby-Doo looks, but the, we love the writing. It's very funny. Um, when the writing really only works because of the way it looks, the, the wide range of humor and the tones that we try to get in the show is dependent on the, the more cartoony look. So all that stuff together was was the development of, of Be Cool Scooby-Doo. And going off of that, was there like a specific inspiration or a purpose for uh, designing the characters that way? They kind of uh, flowed into the writing? Um, yeah, I think I think it was a just a, a desire to try something new and different. 
um, which I think is always a good idea and always valuable to take a chance and try something. Um, the, and also they, you know, we were going for a more comedic take on this, on the franchise and it's sort of like the Simpsons. You know, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, wow, what a fantastic looking show. What, what wonderfully aesthetically beautiful characters these are. Um, they're sort of weird looking yellow spiky haired people. And, um, but the, the, the writing was so great and, and the characters are so rich and dimensional that, that you could do the most broad slapstick humor uh, in the world and also do truly poignant, heartbreaking moments that would make you cry on that show. And, um, and, and that had to do with sort of the look of it. If, if we had had kept that more realistic, traditional Scooby-Doo look, um, a lot of the humor and the slapsticky, uh, broader, surreal stuff just wouldn't have played well. It would have, it would have just played strange and odd. It was, it was pretty essential. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's what they wanted. And so the look was very, very much, um, the, a desire to be able to play with comedy without restriction. And just off the top of your head, can you think of a specific example where uh, you could really lean into the more slapstick side with the with the art? Um, yeah, in in the very first episode, um, Shaggy and Scoopy have that uh, scene in the vending machine with the ghost of Elias Kingston. Do you remember that in Mystery 101? Definitely. Um, that, you know, that that is surreal and absurd and very slapsticky and would have just felt very odd if they were if they were very you know more realistic looking characters but we could get away with doing something like that because because of the pushed more uh, cartoony look and going off of the ability to develop the characters more was there a favorite character out of the main gang to give more personality to for you yeah, I, I, well, at first, um, Daphne was the exciting one. The idea of of making Daphne, uh, you know, Shaggy and Scooby had been the comic relief traditionally in the show. Um, and the idea of taking Daphne and and basically imbuing her with traits where if you were to describe her character, um, there is virtually, I don't think there's anything, any main adjective you would use to describe Daphne on Be Cool Scooby-Doo that would have anything to do with her gender, that she that she's a woman. That really has nothing to do with her personality. And just taking her away from being just the pretty one, um, you know, uh, was, was a lot of fun and making her um, just sort of bold and creative and, and, and silly and... Um, you know, the, the, almost the main comic relief was, was a lot of fun to do. And she was, she was so much fun to write. And, uh, uh, Gray who did the voice, um, it's, it's not unlike in person, um, the Daphne from Be Cool Scooby-Doo. So she just immediately got the character and was brilliant voicing it. Um, 
uh, Daphne just really came to life uh, early, early in the in the process, um, and was was for me the most fun to to work on and write. But eventually, Fred caught up to her for me, and I began having a lot of fun with Fred. And uh, more on Daphne specifically, what was it like to try and come up with a new like thing for her for each episode, from like the puppets to the beard to the mime? <laughs> it was. It was, it was challenging occasionally, but those are, those are really fun challenges, you know, um, trying to, trying to come up with something for Daphne, you know, was, was essential for it. Um, and, and as time went on, um, for me, I found that, um, for instance, I, you know, uh, if you remember, uh, the season two episode, uh, in Salem, the world of witchcraft episode, uh, just giving Daphne a strong point of view on, on the, uh, the, the, the main subject matter of the episode or the location began working just as well for me as, as giving her, you know, what we call the Daphne du jour. So we began moving into that in second season. Um, so, so it really began to become just, limitless and easier as it went on because she was very very felt very very real and established as a character as we went along and what was it like to try and um you know play her up as more than just like the you know stereotypical like pretty girl and giving her more dimension well it, it was it was it was rewarding and it was satisfying and great and it was fun um and I think important because, you know, it's, it's, you know, Fred suffered from basically the same thing. He was just the, I guess, handsome jockey leader type guy, but he really had no personality. Um, but it seemed, you know, at least he was the the leader, you know, he had a, a position of power. Um, and it just sort of seems, you know, telling a, a, a girl, you know, that her value is she's the pretty one is, is not, you know, uh, a, a, a very uh, uh, smart or helpful thing to do. And, and so, you know, we, we weren't really thinking in terms of role models. We were just thinking in terms of what would be, what would be a fun character and, and, uh, you know, that is giving a positive aspirational sort of um, flavor into the world as well. So I think, I think, you know, Daphne does that. And I wanted to chat about Velma a little bit too, because Be Cool was the first uh, television series that Kate Micucci came in for Velma. Yeah. Um, in your opinion, what did Kate bring to the role to make Be Cool's iteration of Velma the way that she is? Kate um, is is also just brilliant and and such a such a great person to work with. She is so creative and so fun and smart. Um, she she brought this sort of awkward vulnerability to the character. Um, we we had my my great regret with Be Cool Scooby Doo is that we had a lot more for Velma that we 
never had time to service all these all these um, layers to her personality we want to sort of develop and and explore that we we just didn't get a chance to really do and and establish enough early on so we were able to continue evolving it um, so so it always kind of bugged me that that Velma was a bit short changed but I thought Kate brought a real sincerity and um, and socially sort of awkward vulnerability to to Velma that that made her feel very relatable to me personally and and uh, and she worked really well with within the context of the rest of the gang it was just a really really strong ensemble of actors um, doing a really you know great job bouncing off each other and connecting and what was it like to uh, work with, you know, Frank and Matt and Gray, who had been voicing the characters for so long, uh, to kind of give them a new new way to play with those characters? <laughs> it was it was it was a lot of fun. They're they're such pros, and they're and they're they're they really really take their work seriously. As much, I mean, they have so much fun in the booth together. Um, and and it's it's you know it's just joy to record with them but they're but they're very they're very very serious professionals about what they do and um they they also came in with with a lot of ownership of these characters they had been doing them for a very very long time and um their their opinions about what the characters would or would not do how the characters would or would not do stuff was was essential and it was important to, to us. Um, and so when we began working with them, the, the, it was, a, it was a, a mental adjustment for them to <laughs> see, see the, the fairly radical change that we brought to, um, you know, particularly Daphne and, uh, and Fred Shaggy was still more or less, um, how Shaggy had always been. We, we, we tried to sharpen him a little bit. Um, the fear was if we make Fred, Velma and Daphne all funny or equally funny, then the funniness of Shaggy and Scooby would be decreased. And we didn't want them to fall below the rest of the gang. We wanted everyone to sort of be equal um, and Shaggy and Scooby still to hold their sort of unique place in the, in the gang and in the audience's mind. Um, so, we we sort of gave them more of the the surreal uh, breaking of physics rules. You know, they 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 could do a little bit more slapsticky, um, broader stuff than the rest of the gang, which sort of gave them their own little unique area they could play in. Um, but um, you know, Matthew Lillard in particular was was really very proud. Um, and respectful of taking on the stewardship of Shaggy from Casey Kasem and um, and was very collaborative with Shaggy in terms of of finding this version of Shaggy. Uh, I think he did a really, really great job. Um, and Frank is, you know, a legend. Um, uh, you know, he's been doing Fred since the beginning and and he still sounds like an 18 year old. It's 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 amazing to work with him. Um, and it, it you know um the the hard thing was getting getting them to read much faster than they were used to um i tend to write stuff that needs to be 
really paced up and read at, at, a, at a really fast clip. Um, but that just took a, a couple episodes for everyone to adjust to, okay, wow, we're going to go that fast, huh? Um, and once they did, they were off and running and uh, they had a lot of fun with the stuff. And, and I thought Frank um, did Fred brilliantly, just, just hilariously. And one of the things that uh, Be Cool did really well was kind of uh, changing the way that the gang would split up in different instances. Uh, how much fun was it to kind of play with the dynamic of the gang? That was something that we, we definitely were trying more in second season was pairing up the characters in different ways than we had done before. You know, Shaggy and Velma um, were, were hanging out and Daphne and Scooby were hanging out in the um, Orson show at the dog, the dog show episode. We, we began, you know, exploring just, just pairings of the characters and how they would relate and interact and, and, and find little stories just to strengthen the individual relationships. And um, it was really fun. It was really the point of the show was, was to have um, even the mysteries themselves um, be personal to the gang. In, in most of the episodes, um, the, whether or not they solved the mystery had personal stakes for at least one of the main gang. Um, you know, again, in the, in the first episode, uh, it was Velma trying to get into this college. If, if they solved the mystery, she did. If they didn't, she would not get into this college. Um, and so, so tying, tying the gang directly into the mysteries, into the stories, making the episodes very character-driven about the gang um, was, was also something fairly kind of new to Scooby-Doo and allowed us to keep the gang sort of front and center and, and emotionally very involved with and connected to um, what was happening, you know, which is trying to solve a mystery. Definitely. And I wanted to backtrack a bit here and just ask how you got into animation in the first place. Through, through Dan Povenmire, um, who along with uh, a swampy Mars created Phineas and Ferb, um, I had known Dan for years and years and years. Um, and we, we were, we were both in, in bands at, at the same time. Um, and we had met through a, a friend of mine, um, who went to USC with Dan and, um, we had always just liked each other and liked each other's work. Uh, we we actually almost married sisters. So we were, however, however that would make you related as family, we were almost that. Um, uh, he married his sister. I didn't actually end up marrying mine. Um, but um, so so Dan Dan I was I had been writing comedy on the for for theater and for the stage for a few years, um, which I would recommend to any writer to, to do that. Um, it's, it's just such a great place to sort of develop your own voice and, and try stuff out um, where, where you're not going to get notes and you're not going to get, you know, uh, and you get immediate audience reactions and adjust stuff and just sort of see how, how, how it's all working. Um, and, and as I said earlier, Dan saw, um, something that I had written on the stage and he had just sold Phineas and Ferb to Disney and asked if I would, uh, write on the show. And I said, yeah, sure. If, you know, they let me and, and they did. And 
you know, it ends up being a really, really great fit um, just for the the odd skill set I had developed at that point, which was these sort of silly comedy, music, art, um, you know, animation was um, was a fairly natural fit. Uh, it was never a goal. It was never something I really sought out. It just I sort of fell into it and uh, and have really enjoyed it. It's been really, really fun and rewarding. With you and Zach both coming from Phineas and Ferb, and you had mentioned earlier that trying to make Be Cool the Scooby-Doo version of uh, Phineas and Ferb, were you actively trying to make the humor kind of similar, or is that just more your style? Well, Warner Warner Brothers, I, I believe, had said, you know, in, in, in an abstract way that they wanted the Phineas and Ferb version of Scooby-Doo. Um, Phineas and Ferb was... Um, it was was very much at least at least the stuff I was writing on Phineas and Ferb was was a tone and a style of comedy that I had been working on and and playing with um, for forever for a very very long time um, and um, and it sort of got absorbed into Phineas and Ferb and just you know my voice with everyone else's voice became sort of the meta voice of the show. Um, and uh, when when they had mentioned, you know, a Phineas and Ferb version of Scooby-Doo, uh, Zach, you know, basically just wanted me to come in and do me or, or, or sort of the my sort of comedy tone that I tend to, you know, uh, is it, just sort of normal and, and, and what I do. And uh, that's, pretty much what Dan Povenmire had asked me to do when I was brought on to Phineas and Ferb. He had seen a stage show that I had written that was very silly. And he said, I want you to write on the show and do that. I, I just don't water it down. Don't change it. Just write like you. Um, and so I've been very, very lucky, just enormously lucky that the shows I've worked on, the people have been pretty much asking me to come on and just write like me. So they're they're sort of a, a specific sort of tone in comedy, but hopefully, you know, um, not out of reach for anyone else in terms of, uh, you know, relatability or whatever. Definitely. And do you have a specific writing process at all, or do you just work from the top down? I, I yeah, I, I pretty much work from the top down. Um, it is, it's, it's usually very slow at the at the beginning getting the first couple pages getting the characters up and running talking to each other um that was that was the main goal and trick with with be cool scooby-doo um more than anything was just starting the gang talking to each other and and reacting literally to the previous line someone says something and then sort of switching into the brain of the other character and making them react organically to it. And once I got them up on the page talking, then then usually everything just sort of flowed from there organically and sort of the domino effect would would plow me through the rest of the scripts. Um, it was, uh, and I guess that's pretty much how I write most things, is slow, slow at the beginning and then speed up as, as it goes, um, but Be Cool Scooby-Doo was definitely like that. Um, 
other than that, yeah, um, not much in terms of, of specific process. And did you have any specific inspirations for any Be Cool episodes at all? Um, yeah, you mean, like, uh, for instance, uh, there were a couple episodes, you know, the first one, Elias Kingston, uh, we, we were, we were very much trying to do, um, go back to the original Scooby-Doo, where are you? Um, and how would we make that show now? So we went back to that original paradigm. That was the, that was the main inspiration was the original show. Um, those five characters driving around in the mystery machine, solving a mystery in a different place every day. Um, we went back to that, um, which was, which is sort of the classic idea of what Scooby-Doo is, but I, I think it actually was that in very few of the series. Am, am I correct? You probably know more this about this than I do, but there weren't that many versions of the show where it was, the, the gang driving around in a van from town to town solving mysteries all together, was there? Um, yeah, there's a couple, but mostly um, the the goal is to kind of get away from that, I think. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it seemed to be is, you know, but we, we felt like, you know, we wanted to, because we were doing so many radical different things with, with, the, with the characters in the show, that giving it some grounding and some some sort of very familiar foundation would be helpful and also allow us to um, you know, try to come up with an original monster or original location Scooby-Doo. It's virtually impossible after 50 years. I mean, they've done everything. Um, we pretty much gave up even researching if, you know, have they done a, you know, a, part alien, part squid, monster, you know, we, we, we gave up trying to figure out if it had been done before because virtually everything had been done. Um, but we were, we, we found that we did um, the Where There's a Will, There's a Wraith episode was, was sort of a reimagination, a reimagining of, um, of, of one of the uh, Scooby-Doo Where Are You episodes. Uh, with Scooby uh, being named in a will and everyone having to stay at the house um, and the, the, you know, those phantom ghosts. Um, we did a couple of episodes like that, that were um, bringing back monsters or, or, or bad guys from, from the original series and sort of uh, doing them our way. You know, what would be our take on that? Um, so yeah, a lot of the inspiration was was insular. It was it was it was coming from Scooby Doo itself. And did you have a favorite episode to write? I really really enjoyed um, the party like it's eighteen eighty nine episode. That was um, the 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 first one was really finding the show. That was the second one I wrote but I think it aired eighth or something like that. But it was, it was the one where I really found the gang to me. Like I, I, I writing them became, they suddenly clicked in and I could navigate them and, and, uh, and understand what they would do sort of innately. Um, so that one was, was very fun and holds a special place in my heart. How about you? Do you have a favorite? Ooh, um, 
I have quite a few, actually. Um, I really like All Paws on Deck. Yeah. And um, I just watched the... Uh, Oh, what's it called? The Upsetting Shorts one yesterday again? <laughs> yeah, tonight of the Upsetting Shorts. <laughs> Which was also fantastic. Oh, thanks. That that was Kyle Stafford, who who is an editor on the show. Um, he's also a really, really great writer, really funny guy. And, um, you know, I work with him a lot in the editing room. And uh, he asked me, you know, he's like, he told me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, interested in writing i would love to write um one of these and uh and i said yeah so so he wrote that one um with me and also the um magic uh, castle one um the the uh, what's the name of that one with uh freddie or not the, oh, uh, I, I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't either. But um, those those are actually two of my favorite episodes. Um, Kyle just got the 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 silliness. You know, some of them like like Madcap or, or In Space were were slightly you know or, or the um, Do Not Disturb were slightly more um, you know a little heavier, a little scarier, a little more serious. And and I love that the show could do that, but it also could go the other way and just be just completely silly and 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 lighthearted like upsetting shorts and and kyle did those silly ones just really really well so yeah <laughs> that one was that one was a lot of fun and uh did you have a favorite episode of the show in general um i ha i had i have a few different favorites for very different reasons um as I mentioned earlier, Party Like It's 1889 was a personal favorite simply because I really felt like I sort of found the gang and found the tone and found it um, from a writing point of view. Um, I still I still like that episode as an episode besides the sort of the personal, you know, satisfaction of, of, of feeling like, oh, I found it. Yay. Um, I still think it was a it was a kind of a cool idea to have them go to a mystery murder party and and you know, to solve a fake mystery and a real one happens to be going on as well. Um, you had mentioned El Bandito. Um, that was another favorite. Um, again, for the episode itself, um, which I wrote with uh, Tom Pugsley, who I'm also currently working with on, on the uh, Lego show that I'm doing. Um, but it was, it was, the first season was was a was a difficult sort of tricky uh, season trying to find the show and 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 get everyone on the same page and and just sort of figure out what we're doing. And Zach and I were feeling like we were flailing a little bit, but El Bandito sort of brought us back. And and I thought was like, oh, we're back on track. We you know this is this is what the show is. And, uh, and I always just really, really liked that episode. And I thought we sort of hit, hit our stride up, you know, from that through the rest of the season one up into about three quarters into season two. Um, I just thought we did some really, really fun, great work. Um, I, I loved um, People versus Fred Jones. That was another one I'd wanted to do for since the beginning, um, a, a courtroom thing uh where we tell the mystery sort of in flashback that that was super fun um the ones where we went to ancient greece or we did um 
you know, uh, the, the, the Scrooge episode, just plopping our version of the gang into different uh, time periods um, or, or destroying, um, you know, uh, uh, famous beloved uh, horror literature or stories like, uh, you know, Christmas Carol. I wanted to do that a lot more. You know, if we had a season three, I probably would have with with Bram Stoker, and Dracula, and Frankenstein, and like all you know these these honored uh, horror books. Uh, you know, putting our Scooby Doo gang into them, and it turns out you know that that oh, it wasn't really a monster; it was a guy in a mask. So basically, destroying, ruining great literature was was a, a goal of mine that that uh, we were able to do at least once. That was super fun. Um, and there's, there's a lot of them that I love for different reasons. Moving back to characters, did you have a favorite character to write for? Uh, at first it was, it was Daphne and then, and then it slowly became Fred over time. I, I, um, and, and, and probably part of that is due to enjoying writing Daphne so much because Fred was the one who was mostly having the strong reactions to what Daphne was doing. And, and eventually I began realizing I was having so much fun with Fred's reactions um, that I was almost, I was almost aiming Daphne like a weapon at Fred just to be able to write Fred's reactions. And um, so I think you sort of see the shift as, as the series progresses through two seasons where um where Fred becomes slightly more the focus of episodes and uh, you know, until really the, the finale is, is sort of about Fred and his father and, and sort of what we start exploring, what drives him to solve mysteries. Um, it, it, yeah, it shifted more to Fred. And I can't find a good credit list for this, but you also wrote at least a handful of songs for the show as well, right? Yes, yeah, I wrote I wrote a handful. Uh, it, you know, it was it was uh, it was a very hectic schedule. It was it was a, a difficult show to write. Um, I mean, it's it's there. There's a lot to do in every episode. Um, a lot to service. So it it began. It became difficult for me to do write more songs and, and do that stuff. But yeah, I wrote, I wrote a few. And what was it like to kind of juggle like writing an episode and writing a song and doing all of the roles that you needed to do? It's, it was, it was great. It's fun. I, I, you know, we did that on Phineas and Ferb. Um, I, I wrote songs. I have an art background, so I did some storyboarding. Um, and as well as writing um so i was i was very used to sort of juggling all that stuff so and and songwriting is 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 really really great and fun um so i certainly would have done it much more had i had the time jake monaco the the composer for the series was just so good i loved the score of equal scooby-doo and how on the end credits he he did a version of of the title sequence music, sort of in a style that complements the location or the the theme of that particular episode. Um, he just did all the smart, great stuff, and and a lot of the songs and music stuff um, 
for the uh, the chase scenes um, fell to Jake eventually, and uh, he did a brilliant job with all of that stuff. So it was never a matter of oh, I have to do this, or you know, we had we had such a great crew, such a talented group of people working on that show that um, it you know just. It was a bummer. I couldn't write more songs because I enjoy it, but it, you know, I don't think it hurt the show. Had the show been able to continue, how many seasons do you think it could have gone on for? I think that we probably could have gone on and actually done really interesting stuff um, for a, a few seasons. I'm, I mean, um, certainly the th- a third season would have been a very strong um, experimental fun season um, as we began expanding in second season and seeing what we could do and how we could push on things. Um, things, you know, began broadening and opening up. So it felt like we were just sort of getting going when everything got shut down. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I'd like to think that, um, you know, we had a really strong, fun gang that were that were sort of good characters to drive stories. So, uh, you know, if, if everyone was willing to be um, go along with pushing the boundaries and keep sort of widening the scope of what we were capable of doing, um, we could have gone on forever. You know, it, it's if 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 we if we were sort of stuck doing the same sort of more traditional, you know, solve a mystery. Um, early on, Warner Brothers wanted, you know, Zach and I wanted to do some funnier monsters and ghosts. Um, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man was, was sort of our example of a monster that was both frightening and silly and funny at the same time. And we want to play around with that a little bit, but but they wanted us to try to keep as traditional and classic with the monsters as possible, which also meant no no talking, just sort of a monsters, um, which which was was fine and also did help sort of ground the show. And and they loosened up. We did you know in the very first episode of Last Kingston talks, but you know we eventually got to the 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 court jester you know ghost that that sort of spoken in medieval rhyming and, and, uh, you know, so we were, we were broadening that. And, and I think we even did some funny stuff with, with the monster, certainly, um, what we would call the shaggy and Scooby haircut scenes where they would sort of dress up and, and trick the monster into believing the, the reality that they were trying to create for him. And he would sort of buy into it and go along with it for whatever reason. Monsters do that on Scooby Doo. Um, <laughs> the 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 monsters are always sort of silly and funny in those moments. So, you know, but but exploring that stuff more, you know, the, there's endless possibilities of what we could have done. I think, you know, because I think that again, the essence of the show was the characters, and uh, and we could, you know, almost even not have a mystery in a show and just still do interesting, compelling stuff with those characters. And I think with um, Scooby Properties in general, Warner Brothers and the various networks that it airs on has been 
either not doing a good job promoting or like having trouble getting it on a good uh like airing schedule did you notice that with be cool it's yeah i i I don't understand that side of how things work in the entertainment industry (laughs) you know it's it seems you know a lot of stuff seems counterintuitive um you would imagine that you know putting a show on the same time at a at a time that's watchable for your target target audience in particular um so it's on at a regular schedule and people know where to find it and then promoting it letting people know it's there would be sort of a no-brainer in terms of trying to make the show succeed so doing putting it on erratically at different times and and then stopping for a few months then suddenly put on three you know on a wednesday at 2 a.m and then suddenly on a sunday at 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 2 p.m you know uh, it seems not the way to make a show succeed um but it happens all the time and i'm not sure why or how or where those things those decisions are made but um you know you just sort of shrug and keep trying to do the best work you can you know definitely um and what would you say to the people that you know refuse to try it just because of how it looks um i would say i i'm sympathetic i understand i I get it change is scary um but you know to know that it seems that those who actually did give it a chance all seem to like it and and you know even even if they still aren't you know i i don't even think that the 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 design of the of the characters where we finally landed is perfect or the most aesthetic thing it could have been but it really works with the writing it really it really makes the writing work um that that they are more pushed and cartoony and stylized like that um and i think eventually you would you would just not notice it anymore it would just be what the show is and you would see um you know a a a very sort of different unique uh, funny scooby-doo show and uh it's probably worth giving it a chance and just generally, why do you think that Scooby-Doo has had such a lasting impact to go on for over 50 years now? I I don't know. Um, perhaps because it has constantly evolved and changed and, and because, like we were saying earlier, um, they never really make the same show again over and over again they 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 changed up you know the very nature of what what the what the show is about from iteration to iteration um sometimes dramatically and and because of its flexibility um and at the core it's it's you know lovable you know, Scooby Doo is is a, is just such a great character and a lovable character, relatable character. Um, so is Shaggy. I mean, I don't think 
is there a Scooby Doo without Shaggy in it? I don't think so. Yeah, I would doubt it. Um, yeah, Matt, Matthew Lillard had talked to me once about Shaggy, and um, I, I I was bemoaning a, a, a joke that I had written for Shaggy that uh, was Warner Brothers decided. No, we don't want Shaggy to say that. That's that it was it was very, very early on in the process before everything was established. It was probably a joke I could have used later in the series. But at first they were like, no, that seems too smart for Shaggy. And I was bemoaning that uh, to Matthew Lillard, who said, yeah, but at the same time, Shaggy and Scooby are really the entry point for for little kids, for the younger audience into this world because they're so relatable. I mean, little kids are afraid of monsters under their bed. They're hungry all the time. I mean, they're, they're you know, the, these sort of id characters like Shaggy and Scooby are, are so, you know, relatable to, to who Scooby-Doo is aimed at. Um, they just hit sort of a, a universal zeitgeist and and I think that that you know, and, and it apparently it always works. It always is appealing to uh, to people and to kids. And then you've got the older generations who grew up with you know whatever version was on TV when they were growing up is sort of their version and, and that they love. And they end up you know wanting their kids to see you know Scooby Doo. So I think it's it's a variety of things, but but they've they've kept it mixed up. They've kept it interesting. They've kept the conversation going, um, and at its at its heart, it is something that is is just very very likable and entertaining. And what was it like for you to step onto the show where you know the characters are so well known and it's such a beloved property? Um, it was at first um, a challenge because that there's a, a quote um about um you know knowing how too far you can go and and that was sort of the question for us um was you know we knew we were going to be actually changing these beloved characters we were going to be we were going to be doing some you know fairly drastic things that haven't been done before with them which was both exciting and also you know, um, we wanted to be, you know, we were always, you know, very respectful about Scooby-Doo and, and we were hoping what we were doing was sort of enhancing and bringing out, um, aspects of the, particularly the original series, but the, but the characters and the, the idea of what Scooby-Doo is in general and, and putting it on display in this sort of new way you know, putting the, putting the diamond in a different setting, um, that, that would be entertaining and illuminating. Um, so, so there was, there was a, uh, you know, a reference there as well for, for the history of it and the weight of it. Um, but, you know, we didn't let that really kind of get in the way of, of also changing whatever we felt needed to be changed in order to, you know, make the show what it needed to be. Hopefully we struck that balance. I think that covers all of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add at all? 
Um, no, I think I've rambled quite enough. Um, yeah, no, there's there's nothing uh, nothing specific. Perfect. Um, and just before we end, do you have any recent projects that you'd like to promote at all? Um, well, I'm currently working on uh, a show called Lego City Adventures uh, for Nickelodeon, um, which is the second season has just started airing. And um, if you enjoyed uh, Phineas and Ferb and, and Be Cool Scooby-Doo, then you, I think you would certainly enjoy this show. It's, it's, it's a very, very original and different show that's trying something new that I've never seen before. Um, and it's a lot of fun. So I would say check it out. Awesome. Uh, and lastly, what are your social media channels if people would like to get in touch with you? Uh, I am um, John Colton Barry pretty much everywhere on Twitter, on uh, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I'm, I'm fairly easily found and uh, and do interact a lot with uh, with people uh, who are, are interested in the various things. So yeah, yeah, people, people tend to find me pretty easily. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, well, I think that covers everything. Thanks so much for uh, chatting with me today, John. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. It was really, really fun. Before we end this episode, here are a handful of side conversations that didn't end up fitting into the main interview, but I still thought were worth tacking on at the end. Yeah, it's, it, there, it is, it is a, a style of comedy that is, um, you know, I, I was sort of raised in a, in a household um, with a lot of creative people and a lot of very funny people. And, um, and along with, you know, cartoons in the morning, um, I would watch Monty Python and Marx Brothers movies and, you know, early, early Woody Allen films. Um, a lot of that stuff is almost like living, living cartoons. Um, the, there's a lot of absurdity and, and surreal humor and, and silliness, but it's all, it's all smart. It's all, these are all very educated, you know, people being really, really silly. And that was the humor that I grew up on and it's sort of in my blood. Um, and it's not, it felt like so as we moved into the eighties, humor sort of shifted a little bit to more sort of dumb guy humor. Um, and, uh, it's just sort of just totally different. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, and there has been, and there still is a lot of amazing, brilliant comedy. Um, but I always was attracted to sort of pre-1980s, a certain kind of pre-1980s comedy that you don't see a lot of now. And, and it's, it's interesting bringing it into um, animation shows for, for families, you know, specifically aimed at, at younger audiences because it is just not a style or um, a tone that they're really going to see a lot in other places. Like, see? You can't beat inflation. <laughs> Sorry, you're right. Politics have no place in balloon animalry. Voila! A meerkat! And the 
orangutan, a space shuttle, a manatee, a fruit bat with stomach flu, a twisted balloon, an evil clown, the sighting of a magna carta. <laughs> And it was just, I think, across the whole show, it was just really nice to see um, a lot more dimensions to all five of the characters. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, it was, it was certainly interesting to to give them dimensions finally, and and find them. Um, I, I was, I was hoping and and slightly surprised that you know I know the show uh, took a lot of uh, hits and was we would not be considered you know a great uh, a big hit show with wonderful ratings but i think some of the things that we did were were good ideas that i would hope people would pick up on and explore in future iterations of scooby doo and one of them being um you know they don't have to be those personalities but really look at Fred, Velma, and Daphne, and and give them, you know, strong character points of views. Give, you know, give them personalities, um, which which it felt, you know, I, I worked on, um, I consulted on the Scoob movie um, for just a short while, um, and. You know they they were you know they were interested in bringing in all you know the Hanna Barbera characters and making sort of a shared universe sort of movie, um, but one one question that came up at one point was you know how do we how do we get rid of Fred Velma, Velma and Daphne um, because I don't think people are that interested in them and. And that question always just sort of blows my mind. And you can, you can hear that question echoing through the history of Scooby-Doo, um, where, where they are bringing in other characters to make the show interesting, or they're getting rid of, you know, uh, one of the three, those three characters, um, because they don't know what to do with them. Um, and the, the solution rarely ever seems to be, well, why aren't we looking at why aren't people interested in those characters? And, than solving that problem. Let's make them interesting. Um, it's just, uh, it was, it's a big question about Scooby-Doo for me. Um, and I know there are people who absolutely love Daphne going back to 1969, just how she is or was and love Fred, you know, for, for who he is and was. Um, and I'm not, you know, certainly not trying to take away um, the people who, from the people who love them, how they, they traditionally have been um and they sort of more of a blank canvas allows you to sort of project your own feelings onto them and 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 pull out from them whatever you want to take from them um which which i i, I certainly see the value of um but it's, it's still you know um would would love to see other people try to solve that problem in their own interesting way of, of really giving the main gang um, very distinct sort of points of views and personalities. And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to John Coltenberry for chatting with me. For more groovy content, 
be sure to check at Unmasked SD on Twitter, at Unmasked SD Podcast on Instagram, or at UnmaskedSDPodcast.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo Podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. And if you want to follow John, you can find him on social media at John Coltonberry. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in this month's Be Cool Scooby-Doo theme, which features producer Zach Moncrief. Scooby-Doo-Bee-Doo!